0: I'm Zibby Owens and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at zibbie Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com where I'll always keep you updated on what I'm up to. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. Today's episode has been sponsored by Mini Rose, which is an amazing sweater cashmere company, which I am just obsessed with. It's named after Lisa Goldberg's grandmothers, whose names were Minnie and Rose. The knitwear company Mini Rose specializes in cashmere of all styles and colors. You can shop at minirose.com and get 10% off with code ZIBBY10, capital Z-I-B-B-Y. 10. You can see some of the sweaters I've been wearing lately on my Instagram lives and, and try to shop those. They're so lightweight and comfortable and they fit great and I'm a huge fan. I was able to do an Instagram live with Susan Choi, which was so much fun. Susan's first novel, The Foreign Student, won the Asian American Literary Award for Fiction. Her second novel, American Woman, was a finalist for the 2004 Pulitzer Prize. Her third novel, A Person of Interest, was a finalist for the 2009 Penn Faulkner Award. In 2010, she was named the inaugural recipient of the Penn-WG Sebald Award. Her fourth novel, My Education, received a 2014 Lammy Award. And her fifth novel, Trust Exercise, which came out in April 2019 and is the one we're going to be talking about the most, won the 2019 National Book Award for Fiction. Her first book for children is called Camp Tiger, and it came out in May 2019. A recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation. She currently teaches fiction writing at Yale and lives in Brooklyn. Hi, Susan. How are Hi, you? Hi. I'm good. How are you? Can you I'm hear good. me? I can. Can you hear me? I
1: can, and I can Great. see you. Great.
0: <laughs> did you have a nice Mother's Day? I did. I had a really peaceful Mother's Day. How about you? Yeah, it was nice. It was nice. Really yeah. kids breakfast in bed, the whole thing. So that was, that was really special. <laughs> oh, that's great. What did you get to eat? Pancakes and some scrambled eggs. Although once Excellent. I was in bed with all the food, they just wanted to eat it all. So I might've had like two bites. <laughs> but I was going to
1: say when you said pancakes, I was like, that suspiciously sounds like, you know, a menu choice that might've had more to do with them than
0: you, but uh, yes, yeah. But the bites that I had were great, and I was—I'm always happy when they're eating something. So, <laughs> how about you? Did you have breakfast in bed?
1: I did not. I did not. But I had a really lovely day, despite so that. I have-
0: I have to ask, did you somehow reunite with your hairdresser because I've been watching your Instagram <laughs> posts about how sad you are that you don't have the same perfect bob as last time, but it looks so perfect to me today. Oh, did you're someone so come nice. Over? How did you do it?
1: No, there's been no there's been no reunion and no one has come <laughs> over. I love that. My my hairdresser who I adore actually posted a video of himself on Instagram like um you know that style of like the Bob Dylan holding the placards and then like going yeah. through and the message is like, don't touch your hair. I, nothing's happened to my hair except that I flat iron it like a crazy person so that it's all just going to fall out one of these days. <laughs> you know, this is all an illusion. Like, I think it probably looks a lot better than it feels because of my wow. cool, constant ironing to keep it under control. So that's my <laughs> quarantine secrets.
0: Quarantine secrets. Love it. <laughs> well, whatever you're doing, I will have to invest in a flat iron, I guess, because maybe that's the trick.
1: <laughs> yeah. I have to say I couldn't live without it. All
0: right. Who knew? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, thanks for doing this with me. And I know you have a big event tonight at McNally Jackson with Michael Cunningham. Is that right? Or did I get- Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's tonight at seven. We're really excited. And I just, one of my favorite writers, but also one of my favorite people. So I'm so excited to talk to him. I love talking to him about anything. The fact that we're going to talk about my work seems to me like surreal. Maybe we'll just talk about other stuff. <laughs> yeah,
0: you'll have to just divert the conversation back to his work or something. <laughs> yeah, or just,
1: you know, him his his career, his writing process. I'm excited to just kind of talk about writing with him. We're also colleagues, we teach together and So we might even talk about that. We might even talk about our lives as teachers, which is a really important part of life for both of us.
0: And you went to Yale and you teach at Yale. Is that right? Yes, that's right.
1: I went to Yale a long, long, long time ago, and I've been teaching at Yale for not that long. I've been there since 2015. I went to Yale too. I, I know. My teacher.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I know, but I don't think we overlapped.
1: No, <laughs> I think I I'm, think I'm so. older than you
0: a little bit. <laughs> Although I have to say, the writing class I took at Yale was one of my favorites anywhere, and I wish I could remember the teacher's name. But it was like oh, a prose too. writing class, and I still have the essays I wrote for that. I should dig them up somewhere. <laughs> like,
1: you should. I'd be yeah. so curious to know who your teacher was. There, oh, there, was there are so people good. who
0: are are there. Are people who have been there a
1: long time. I think it's. It's a great place to teach. The students, this is going to sound immodest, so I'm not talking about myself, but just from my experience, the students are amazing. My students that I teach. When I was a student, I don't think I was amazing, but as a teacher, I find the students to be just incredible. I love, love teaching them and I learn a lot from them. <laughs>
0: I feel like the standards go up every year. I feel like there's no way I could get in now that if I were like a young person. You know, I like guess oh. 43. You know, like forget it.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not I'm not commenting on you. I'm sure you could. I feel the same I way could. about myself though. Absolutely. And like good friends of mine that I made while I was at that school, we all agree, you know, we would never get in today. We were so lucky. I mean, I was clueless, you know, when I arrived there and I mean, clueless, like a, about a lot of things, but also just academically, not super prepared. And my students are just radioactive. They know so much. I don't know how it happens. They're they're so of, smart.
0: I'm feeling badly for my own kids who are very bright, but I don't know. I mean, you have to be like a rocket scientist to get into school these days. But anyway, that aside, <laughs> But, so much of what you end up writing about takes place in academic settings, and so I feel like you must have this special affinity towards not only teaching but writing about teaching. It's all sort of becoming very meta like <laughs> it yeah like you said out. Tell me about this draw you have to sort of academia and also writing uh, writing about it
1: yeah i I do. I sort of feel like I need to get over it and stop,
0: stop writing no, about it. No, no, But way, not at all.
1: No, you, you're not at all. But it, it's funny. Like one of my one of my dearest friends said after reading a draft of a new book of mine, he said, "You just can't leave academia alone, can you?" <laughs> and that was my second book, and so and now with five, it's it's pretty clear. But I think part of it is just my background, my dad emigrated to this country from Korea to seek an education and he became a professor and he, you know, is one of those parents who really, if he imparted anything to me, it was the importance of education and how much it would mean to him for me to get an education. And, and so that's sort of what I grew up with. And I think that that's, you know, I think like if I'd grown up an army brat, maybe I would write about the military, but I grew up in, in that culture. So that's the one I write about. And now I work in it too. You know, I'm a teacher. And so I'm thinking about students and teachers all the time. And I also think that, you know, the relationship between students and teachers, it's super ordinary because we've all had that relationship. And it also can be really fraught and like rife with danger, depending. I mean, it's it's the kind of relationship that can can, you know, span the spectrum from being hopefully just a basically successful relationship to not hopefully, but often a really, really strange relationship, you know? And so I think I'm always drawn to when relationships that could be normal aren't.
0: Have you ever had an experience with a student, even since 2015, that's towed the line of normalcy in some way? That's a good question. I want to
1: say, from my perspective, the answer is no. And I hope to God that that's true and that I don't, you know, I don't have a student out there who feels like I crossed the line or, you know, abused my relationship with them in some way, because I think about it all the time. You know, I think constantly about the fact that it's not just by like not doing evil that you're a good teacher. You have to really kind of actively do good. Do you know what I mean? And you have to constantly be thinking about the fact that you have more power than your student. Like, even though these students are, like we just said, so smart, it doesn't mean that they're my equal. I always have more power than they do. And I have to be careful. You know, anyone who has more power than somebody else has to be careful all the time. You can't just sort of assume like, oh, I have good intentions. I'm not going to do anything that's going to hurt anyone. So I hope the answer is no, but you know, it's complicated. I
0: I meant it more from their perspective, not that you would abuse your power. I mean, obviously, I mean, I felt like that went without saying that you would not do that. I just (laughs) meant like, did you have any, you know, I feel like adolescence in that particular time of life is when so much comes out. I mean- different mental illnesses and not to, I mean, this is sort of going on a tangent, but you know, like even things like schizophrenia and all these things come out during adolescence. And I always wonder, like if you're a teacher in those scenarios and different kids have different things occurring to them, how does that all interact? And anyway.
1: Oh yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's complicated. Yeah. I've definitely, I've had students who were troubled. I've had students who had terrible experiences elsewhere in the institution that they, you know, needed to work out. You know, I've, I've had students who clearly like were struggling with things and, and I've, I've always hoped to be helpful, but it's so complicated. It's so complicated. I think students are dealing with so much. It feels to me like, you know, they're both smarter than we used to be. Again, not you used to be, but me. But yeah, also I feel can, like...
0: Please include me. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> but I, sure. I just feel like their world is so much more complicated now than at least my world was as a student. And there's just a lot, you know, there's a lot to deal with. This idea that students are snowflakes, I think is really unfair. I mean, I'm like, look at the world our kids are growing up in. This is not like, look at what we're doing right now.
0: Look look at what's happening. So it's, it's, they have a lot to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me a little more about how you approach your novel. So you've, each one I've read, it takes you about five years on average to write. And then (laughs) press exercise was almost like your diversionary tactic from procrastinating from another book (laughs) that you were also and perhaps still writing. So tell me just a little bit about that and how you pick your projects and what the (laughs) process is like when you're writing.
1: Yeah. Trust exercise was my diversionary project, but that doesn't mean it didn't also take five years. It's like, even though it was a side project, I was also working on it for like at least that long. It's funny, the way I work has changed so much. And I'm only like now wrapping my mind around how different it is. When I wrote my first novel, I had been struggling for so long. I had pieces of it that really came out of like writing I was doing when we were in college, you know, like short stories I was trying to make work. I went to grad school. I was still trying to make it work. I still just had a pile of junk. I left grad school with like nothing to show for it and had a full-time job. And I would like go home at night and eat a can of tuna and just like try to make this book work that I'd been dragging around for years. And it finally came together like a patchwork quilt, you know, like of all these different pieces And after that, I was like, I will never write a book like that again. Like that was a mess. So I started doing this thing where I would write a book almost like on a dare to myself. Like this happened with my third book and my fourth, where I just, I started and I thought every single day I'm going to write forward and I can't look back. I can't change anything I have to like write a certain number of words a day or I, I don't get lunch, which is super motivating. Like if you start working in the morning, I'd be like, I've got to make my word count or like no lunch. Sounds a little obsessive. Did, but you,
0: did, did you enforce that? Did you go days without lunch?
1: No, no, no. I just, I just wrote bad words. You just I mean, okay. not bad
0: words, like customers. <laughs> I
1: mean, I just wrote like bad writing. It's like anything to get to lunch. But so I wrote, I wrote these books like in this kind of super rigorous way where I just like, drove myself forward. And in the end, huge amounts of revision were required. Like one of these books halfway through, I just hated one of the main characters so much. I just like continued as if she didn't exist anymore. I was like, she just can't be here. And I was like, I'll fix it later. And I did, you know, another one of these books, it was in first person. And at some point I was like, this is unbearable. And I switched to third and I was like, I'll just fix it later. And so that worked with those two books and I thought like I had it all figured out and in fact would tell my students like this is how you write a book and then it just all fell to pieces and I was trying to write this book that is the one that like I've mentioned in interviews at Trust Exercise I couldn't make work I was doing all my old tricks you know lunch word count forward every day and it was it was just horrible it's like a truly I mean, you'll have to take my word for it because it's never going to be published in its current state, but this book just doesn't work, wouldn't work. And I was so, yeah, I was just so thrown for a loop because I was like, I thought I had the formula and I didn't. And so meanwhile, just in order to like make that daily word count, I started kind of doing other things on days that I just couldn't stand looking at this book anymore. And trust exercise ended up being one of those other things. And it it was years, like years of running away from this bad, failed project and kind of like sneaking into trust exercise and writing enough to earn lunch. And then, you know, after many years of this, I realized I have a big pile of this trust exercise thing and I have a big pile of this other thing and I need help. And so I showed both piles to my agent and she said, I think it's the trust exercise pile we're going to go with. And it was such a surprise, but, you know, and now all bets are off. Cause I'm like, clearly that like recipe that I figured out for novel writing was not the recipe. Like now I have to invent it all over again.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. A no little
1: demoralizing.
0: Please, please. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's just the one book that didn't fit. Like maybe that's the aberration that that's that, yeah. like, the outlier.
1: Maybe. I mean, it's also kind of empowering, I have to say, to just sort of realize, like, there's all sorts of different ways to do this. And, you know, I've now kind of stumbled upon a couple of them. And there's probably as many other ways as there are other writers. And it's actually been great for my teaching, too, because I tell my students, I'm like, you know what, there's like no secret to this. You may think you found the secret and it's going to stop working one day and you've just got to roll with it and be like, I guess I have to find a new secret.
0: This is reminding me so much of parenting because as soon as soon I feel like I have <laughs> yes. one thing nailed, you know, this is how I handle tantrums. And like the next day comes and it doesn't work. And I'm like, oh, I thought I, where, I have no confidence now because I can't yeah. rely on anything. So, oh my God. You know, and you have four so kids, things. right? Yeah, I have four kids. Yeah. Um, see,
1: I only have two and I've totally had that experience already. Like with my first one. We did sleep training. This, this my first one is, he's 15 now. So this is a long time ago. We did sleep training. He was like the textbook baby for sleep training. We thought we were such geniuses. Like the annoying parents of one child who would tell every other parent of a newborn, like, oh, it's just like this. This is all you have to do. Just get this book. Everything will be fine. Our second child came along. Again, all bets were off. Sleep training, total failure. It's It's exactly like what you say, where we were just like, it's as if we've never had a child. Yes. <laughs> I can't imagine having that happen four times. Oh,
0: I, I mean, <laughs> I can't even like remember the sleep training of the last one, but well, I did have twins. So it wasn't, you know, one oh after another. God. So I cheated well, in that way. No, I'm so but glad they like, brought you
1: those pancakes yesterday. You deserve like...
0: <laughs> yeah, I deserve pancakes like wrapped in gold or something. But it's yeah, okay. and a split of <laughs> champagne too. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I feel like I, I talk to a lot of authors who say the same thing as you that with each new project, it's not it's never a sure thing. And I think from a reader's perspective, having followed careers like yours and other authors, you just assume that when they start and ne- their next book, like, boom, no problem. But it seems to me that everybody is filled with all sorts of insecurities and worries. And like, that it's this like, magical thing that happens and it might not happen again. And it's so interesting to hear that this basically happened to you.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm always, not to be judgmental, but like when writer friends that I know speak of just like always doing things a certain way or just, you know, having everything under control in terms of their process, I'm always like highly suspicious. I mean, I don't think that they're, I don't think they're deceiving me, but I just, I find it really hard to believe because I find it so much more common to, you know, talk to other writers who say, yeah, I feel like I've never done this before. You know, I mean, somebody can be mid-career, even late career. And they're, and they're like, I just don't even know. It's like, I'm just starting out. And again, like it's useful for teaching in a way, because I always say to my students, I hope this isn't discouraging to you, but yeah, there's no like, there's no, like, crypt of secrets that's being, like, guarded by those of us who've published books. And, like, you're never going to get into it. I'm like, we don't know. We we just, <laughs> like, we have managed to figure it out, like, totally through trial and error. Sometimes more than once. But it just keeps being the same trial and error.
0: Yeah. So I think it's just though- you get
1: used to it.
0: <laughs> why do you keep going back to the book that you feel like is so difficult and it's not working? Why not just abandon that project and start something new? Like, oh what God. is it about that project that's like making yes. you like,
1: keep it? You're agreeing with away? like the devil on one shoulder who's like, just dump that project.
0: <laughs> like, well, no, <laughs> I'm not trying to encourage you to dump it. I'm just saying there must be something really compelling about it that makes you keep going back to it. You know, it'll oh, probably end up winning like the National Book Award again. It's going to be this like <laughs> amazing book for the ages. But what is it that is like, your stumbling block with it, and what is it that keeps drawing you to it?
1: Yeah, know, Zivy. I was hoping you were encouraging me to dump it. I was like, yeah, I
0: should just <laughs> no. So this this book is complicated because it's about my
1: family, and so I think in the same way that like your family is, and my and I mean my extended family. It's about my grandfather mainly, and my and somewhat about my father. And you know, family history is weird that way. It's like sometimes you just think I don't want to deal with this. I don't care. (laughs) Like, this is the past. I'm shutting the door. But you never can, right? You can, like, never shut the door on your own family's history. And also, it's really compelling. So my grandfather, this is my dad's dad. My dad's a Korean immigrant. He came to this country in the mid-50s after the Korean War had ended. And his family was, I think, like, a really remarkable and sort of fascinating family. My grandfather, his father was a scholar, a literary critic, A fiction writer, a translator, and his focus was English and European literature. So all of the stuff that I was studying in college, my grandfather, that was his field. And he, I mean, he did crazy things like translated Joyce into Korean.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: What? I mean, can you even imagine? No. (laughs) And not speaking Korean myself, there's like no way for me. I mean, I can barely read Joyce in the language in which it was written. But anyway, so I'm fascinated by this this person because you know, not only did he love the things that I love, literature and, and writing, but he also had a really sort of he had a really kind of controversial career in Korea because of Korean politics during his lifetime. Korea was colonized by Japan. It was a very unhappy relationship. And so without like getting too complicated, because we could talk about this for an hour and I've been researching it for a decade, under like the colonial occupation of Korea by Japan, if you, were, if you were a successful person, that was suspicious, right? Because, you know, what were you doing to make the Japanese authorities leave you alone? My grandfather published a literary journal and during the war years when, you know, Japan was allied with the Axis powers and was sort of using the Korean Peninsula as like a staging ground for their war effort and imperial expansion and, you know, committing atrocities in China. And, and you know, this is, this is a whole lot of history here. It was very hard to publish a literary magazine, as you can imagine. That wasn't exactly okay. a priority. And it was very easy to suppress that kind of publishing. If you were the Japanese colonial government, you could just not give people paper could just be like, we're sorry, little seditious Korean patriotic magazine. We, we're just out of paper for you. Oops. And no one in the international community could really accuse you of censorship because there's just no paper. And the Japanese colonial government was really good at that kind of oppression. But my grandfather's journal had paper, right? He, he continued publishing deep into the war years and after the end of the second world war when japan was defeated and korea was liberated anyone who had been moderately successful during occupied during the occupied period came under suspicion including my grandfather you know what 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 did he do to get along with the occupying forces what did he do to keep getting paper it's such an unimaginable thankfully situation for us to ima- to live ourselves to Sorry, I'm losing my words here. It's unimaginable for us in the world that we live in now, blessedly, so I'm fascinated by it. And I'm always like, always just wishing that I could learn more about what his life was like, especially because of these controversies. I think that that kind of draws me sort of irresistible.
0: So are you writing it as fiction or as memoir? Oh, such a good question. (laughs) That's like,
1: that's one of the problems. I've been writing it as fiction And it's not really working, in my opinion. And so I've wondered, like, is this a memoir? I'm not a memoir writer. I love fiction because I can take things in the real world that fascinate me and then I can bend them to my storytelling will and and take liberties and make the best possible story without necessarily being bound to the facts. Because facts are, you know, facts are facts. You can't bend them if you're writing history or if you're writing memoir. So I don't know.
0: (laughs) I've been grappling with this question for years. I think you should should try writing it all as truth and then go back and do your big edit thing and then make it better where you need to. But why don't you just get it all out? Just like get all the facts out.
1: Yeah, I'm trying. And it's, it's interesting because every time I think like, oh, I'm so done with this, something happens that kind of pulls me back. Like just last week, this professor, an American professor at the University of Minnesota got in touch with me and said, you know, I've learned that you're the granddaughter of this, this literary figure. I'm translating his work into English and I need permission to publish the translations. And can you give me permission? Cause like, I don't know who else to ask really. And I was like, oh, here I am hooked again. Cause my grandfather's work is like still relevant." kind of intellectually and politically and people are working on it. Like scholars of Korean history are actually studying it. So mm. that makes it hard for me to just go, I'm not going to, I'm not going to look into it anymore. So I'm going to try what you suggested. Write <laughs> yeah, it all down. It a shot.
0: Yeah. <laughs> just give Write it, a it shot. all down. <laughs> Think of me before lunch. Then as you're having your tuna sandwich, you can say, see, that worked so well today.
1: <laughs> I will. I will. Or I'll text you and be like, damn
0: you Zivy! I can't do this. And I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll find the words, you know, you can just like <laughs> bang on the. you know. <laughs> I mean, Thanks. research sounds, but anyway. Well, I had wanted to talk to you about trust exercise, but all this stuff is so interesting to me. It's <laughs> so much more interesting. I mean, not more interesting, I but just the idea of how your creative process is working. Oh, it's fun, so yeah, to talk about it. But what was it like? What was it like for you? And I, I read one interview when you it was about to be the award ceremony and you were trying to be all cool about it. Like, it's okay if I don't win. It's just an honor to be nominated. But then you went up and won. So I was just wondering, what was that like, this sort of Oscars of the literary world feeling? Like, was it like an Oscars ceremony for you? Like, what was that moment like?
1: Oh my God. It was like an Oscars ceremony for me. And I'm so, I'm going to cry. I'm so grateful. I mean, obviously, like, I'm so grateful to have won, but I'm so grateful we had a ceremony, you know? Like, I just when I think about that night, it was, it was in November, November 19th or 20th. It was the week before Thanksgiving. And just the excitement of like, I rented a gown. I didn't own a gown. So I rented a gown, but I really liked it. And, you know, getting dressed up and going to this ceremony that started with like, a huge cocktail hour and everyone buzzing and, you know, elbow to elbow, like meeting other, right. I really admired John Waters was there in like a brocade suit that was to (laughs) die for. And I was so tongue tied. I literally like, I stood next to John Waters, like a weird stalker for maybe 10 minutes and couldn't even bring myself to introduce myself to him. But just that excitement of like being in a room full of people, i just I hope whoever is nominated for the National Book Award this year and and for any other award like that, I really hope that they get that celebration. I just thought it was amazing to have that experience and then actually win, but now it was just amazing to have that experience you know and and then afterwards there was a dance party, and at some point I was like, Oh my God, it's almost two in the morning. I have to go home like I haven't been up this late since I can't remember when, so it was such a fun night it was just. It was a blast, I have to say. I feel really lucky to have gotten it.
0: Oh, that's such a nice story. And yes, I feel like there's so much longing now for all sorts of celebrations like that one.
1: Oh, I know. I mean, we appreciated them then, but like, God, we just had no idea how much we would miss
0: it. I know. It's really, it's really crazy. So do you have any other side projects that you're using (laughs) just to get through your other big project, Like, do you have another simmering novel that's, like, treading along? I do. Yeah, I do, actually. It's another—this all
1: kind of goes back to what we were talking about when we first started talking about, like, my—what I thought was my method— and how it's clearly not because-
0: Not your your hair, you mean? (laughs) (laughs) No, not my hair, that that other method. Not the (laughs) ironing
1: of my hair method. (laughs) I mean, I used to really like work on one thing and I was like, this is what I'm working on and working on anything else is like cheating and I'm going to stick with this until I finish. And I've found that I've like turned into somebody who's working on like a bunch of different things at once and like all the stuff that's like been on the back burner for so long that, when I actually look closely at it, I'm like, there's a lot here. So there is another project in addition to this grandfather one that is a story about a family. And I started working on it years ago. And it's another one of these things that like every once in a while, for some reason that I can't explain, I want to write about them again. And I kind of go and find that file and add to it. And I've been recently looking at that material more. And it's exciting if something that you you wrote like, several years back still kind of captures your attention. You know, I there's a lot of stuff that I've written that like, I look at it again and I'm like, ugh, you know, no. But this stuff, it's still kind of tugging at me and that's exciting. So that's what I'm I feel I'm, like, I that's feel like you're... Doing
0: beating yourself up over your process when in actuality, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just the way you work. It's okay. Like, it's great. How great to have multiple projects in the works.
1: No, absolutely. I totally agree. And it's not, I wouldn't say it's beating myself up so much as like, I'm constantly surprised by the changes. Right. But I'm getting, I'm getting better about that. I'm getting, I think I'm, I'm getting to be more aware that there isn't one right way. You know what I mean? And that it's like really helpful to kind of be attuned to different modes in yourself and not to think like, oh, I'm being lazy or, oh, I'm avoiding something. But to think like, oh, I'm in like a different mode right now. I'm in a space where this is what's interesting to me and I can just go with that and that's okay instead of, you know, feeling like I'm slacking off.
0: Well, I feel like we are all in a different mode these days. So Tell <laughs> me about makes it. Perfect, makes perfect sense.
1: <laughs> and we have a um, lot of time to like be aware of our modes, right? Yes. Yes. And, and to uh, sort of reflect on them.
0: Yes, perhaps too much time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. And oh, thank um, you. Listeners. This was so fun. Oh, it fun it's fun for me too. <laughs> and it's really
1: great to be with you. And I have to say I'm so grateful that. I've had my phone propped up between a pair of five pound weights and I'm so happy that it hasn't fallen over. So
0: it's like the little things to be grateful for in life. Thank you, five pound weights. I have not even like picked my weights up off the ground in the garage for this entire time. So at least you're using yours. (laughs) I'm not using the weights to work out.
1: but I am using them to prop up my phone and they've, they've done a great job. So thank you, five pound weights. And maybe I'll actually work out with you someday also.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Ivy. Take, right, take care. Stay okay. safe. Bye. You too. Thanks again for listening to my podcast. Moms don't have time to read books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibbie Owens and at moms don't have time to read books and sign up for my mailing list at Zibby So you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Today's episode has been sponsored by Mini Rose. Check it out at minirose.com and get 10% off with code Zibby10, Z-I-B-B-Y, 10. 10, And go shop for some sweaters. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.